Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers, and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Viren Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, editor, and translator Matthew Zapruder. Zapruder has a bachelor's in Russian literature from Amherst College, a master's in Slavic languages and literature from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MFA in poetry from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. He's the author of four collections of poetry, including Come On All You Ghosts, a New York Times notable book of the year, and most recently Sun Bear, both from Copper Canyon Press. 
His poetry has been anthologized in Best American Poetry, Legitimate Dangers, American Poets of the New Century, Third Rail, The Poetry of Rock and Roll, and Poets on Teaching. He has collaborated with painter Chris Uphughes on the book For You in Full Bloom, co-translated the Romanian poet Eugen Jebelanu's last collection entitled Secret Weapon, and has had his own poetry adapted and performed by composers at Carnegie Hall. So Pruder's honors include a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lannan Foundation Fellowship, the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America, and the May Sarton Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Matthew Zapruder is also the co-founder and editor-at-large for one of my all-time favorite presses, Wave Books, the publisher of past Between the Covers guests Mary Rufel and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Tayemba Jess. And for the past year, Matthew Zapruder served as the poetry editor of the New York Times Magazine. He has taught at NYU and the New School and is currently the director of the St. Mary's College of California's MFA program in creative writing. If that all wasn't enough, he's also the guitarist for the rock band The Figments. Matthew Sapruder is here today to talk about his latest book entitled Why Poetry, out from the echo imprint of HarperCollins, a book that argues that the way we've been taught to read poetry is the very thing that prevents us from enjoying it. Poet Robert Haas says of Why Poetry, Sapruder's prose is so direct that you have the impression, sentence by sentence, that you are being told simple things about a simple subject, and by the end of each essay, you come to understand that you've been on a very rich, very subtle tour of what's aesthetically and psychologically amazing about the art of poetry. Queen Sugar author Natalie Bazil adds, why poetry invites us to come as we are. It embraces readers who already love poetry while engaging those who secretly suspect that poetry demands a password or decoder ring. Part personal memoir, part literary history, Zapruder writes with clarity, intelligence, and heart. Welcome to Between the Covers, Matthew Zapruder. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's begin with the idea that we've been taught poetry wrong, that um, this miseducation is one of the main obstacles when we first engage with poetry. You say near the beginning of the book that we need to forget much of what we've learned. So Perhaps you can remind us of the things that we need to forget. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's different for a lot of different people. And some people probably were lucky enough to have that amazing poetry teacher in high school. And um, But I think the majority of us are taught some version of the fact that, well, first of all, that poetic language is coded. It's inherently symbolic. Um, and that sometimes the words don't mean what they really seem to mean. And we have to figure out what the poet really meant by purple or what the poet really mean by, you know, grass or something. Um, and it's often unclear to us which words are symbols and codes and which words are not. <laughs> and that presents obvious problems. And then, so that's one issue. So around poetic language itself, but then I think also just on a larger sense, we're taught to think that poems are these kind of message delivery services, you know, they're, they're like riddles or maybe like little, little koans. We're supposed to kind of figure out what the, what the big hidden message of them is. And so, you know, a lot of that, a lot of time is spent kind of digging through to figure out what the poet really meant or what the poet really wanted to say. And then often at the end of this whole arduous process, we come up with a relatively banal message like, 
death is real or, <laughs> or, or I am sad right. or something, you know? So, so I think, and the people who spend a lot of time with poems know that that's, that's a pretty reductive and unproductive way to look at it. But, but I think just the general public or people who don't spend a lot of time with this might just kind of carry around those ideas implicitly in them. And so my, the book is, was an effort to try to address those, those ideas and maybe, maybe kind of work with them or loosen them up. Yeah. And you're not just talking about, um, perhaps a high school poetry teacher um, teaching it wrong, you're, there are actually prominent literary critics who are asserting things that you disagree with. So, for instance, you cite Harold Bloom, who says, the art of reading poetry begins with a mastery of elusiveness, with a thinking about things referred to outside of the poem itself. Can you, can you speak to um, this dynamic, which is related to what you just spoke of, not just about uh, whether it's a code, but where we begin and he's right. suggesting in a sense that we begin with what is being referred to outside of the poem yeah and i i mean that's another aspect of this that you wisely also you know remind us of that uh you know this idea that the poem is kind of treated like this uh high high art it has the unfortunate kind of uh reputation of being this rarefied activity a lot like classical music has this problem too and um, but yeah, I, I feel a little bad because in the book, I, I, I gently chide Harold Bloom, who's a brilliant critic and has written so amazingly about poetry and many other things. And I, I, I feel sort of bad about it. But the fact is, is that what he says, like strictly speaking is not true. The, I mean, the art of reading poetry doesn't begin with figuring out what the allusions to things are, whether there are other poems or classical you know, mythological events or whatever it is, or historical events, it, it, it begins with looking at the words on the page. And that sounds so simple and kind of stupid, but it's precisely what people don't do. And if they would do that, then it, the whole poem would open up. And then, of course, allusions, references, all kinds of things, those things are, of course, also there. But you, if you jump immediately to the other thing, and I mean, all this is based on my teaching, too. I mean, I've just over and over, I've seen students do this very smart students, you know, really sensitive students, students who, but they just are so quick to just l jump out of the poem before they even, it even gets a chance to be what it is. Well, like we, before we started recording, we were talking about Mary Rufel and our mm -hmm. mutual admiration for her. And I was thinking of my experience of reading, uh, trances of the blast, which, uh, without knowing the illusion in the title, mm -hmm. which from some, comes Coleridge, from Coleridge, yeah. and it's uh, uh, in, his poem is, or poems are engaging with childhood in this instance. Mm -hmm. um, you don't need to know that to enjoy her poetry yeah. collection, but it does feel when you learn it a little bit like you're unlocking something, or at least yeah. unlocking one little room that yeah. gives you an insight. Sure, absolutely. And I mean, I would, I mean, of course, and I, I, I'd say, you know, that that, is interesting and, 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 and does connect her with this kind of, it makes an unexpected connection, but actually less unexpected than you would think the more you think about it when you, when, when you read Coleridge and learn about him. But, but I don't think that's the first order of business when yeah. thinking about that title or those poems, which I mean, it sounds like you agree with that too, but like, but, and in fact, I mean, just to be a kind of dumb about it, you couldn't even have that realization about Coleridge if you didn't, read those words carefully and you just immediately start translating them into other words, you'd even miss that reference. Right. So, you know, you need, you need the actual words to, to make the connection. So, so it's, I mean, it's, and it, again, it almost sounds 
when I write it or say it, it almost sounds like so obvious and stupid, but it's just, it's just, I feel like a lot of my role as a teacher, honestly, is just to remind people to stay in the poem. Yeah. But what's really interesting to watch as this book has come into the world is this, this very thing that seems both straightforward and simple on one hand, and in, and you're saying maybe you're a little self-conscious, saying it feels obvious yeah. or even dumb, um, is is the very source of where a lot of the controversy or misunderstanding of of your book has come yeah. in the world. And so I just wanted to unpack that a little bit, if sure. you didn't mind. <laughs> but your assertion that one's engagement with poetry should begin with the actual words seems really seems unobjectionable, right? right? <laughs> yeah, like like, who, like should, who would object to that? It seems so right. like like we should start with the literal yeah. meaning. Rather than a hidden meeting, yeah. Um, this seems straightforward, um, but on the other hand, um, it seems to me like it has something to do with the word "begin." You talk right. about "begin," yes. and a lot of people that we should begin there, not that we should end there. Yep. And yet, I think that might be where some of the controversy is coming in—the skipping over of that qualifier. Isn't it hilarious that there, um, the people who don't listen to what I'm saying are doing the very opposite thing that I'm telling people to do? Yeah, <laughs> which is which is re- close read what I'm saying. Close read the word. Be- pay attention to the word begin. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't really like pay attention. That's well, you even I italicize it in the book. Right. I in really wanted people. Yeah, and I go on to say that's supposed to open things up. It's a beginning. It's yeah. not. It isn't the be all and end all. And also, I do think that people have it. I think to be fair, there's this ongoing argument which I find ex- exceptionally tedious, which is about you know should poems be yeah. simple or that horrible word, accessible, you know, versus like, should they be strange or whatever? I I just find that argument so boring and it never leads anywhere. And I am not talking about that. I'm, I'm regardless of what the poem is, no matter how strange or weird or surrealistic or, or, or straightforward it is, it has to begin with a real attention to the words. And I, in the book, I kind of try implicitly to pick a range of poems so that, so that by sort of implicitly I'm making this statement that that I reject that kind of artificial, you know, division between so-called easy poetry and so-called hard poetry. But I got I think people just always want to drag any statement about poetry back into that that argument. And I just I reject that. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know? Well, it feels like a lot of the confusion's happening with this essay that was extracted from the beginning of the book. But yeah. as, if you read the book as a whole I don't think there's any confusion about where you stand, and it seems to be even the same place that a lot of these people who are having trouble with that essay are standing mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and you well, also- I don't want to interrupt you, but I just I do want to say one thing, which is that, that you know you and I are we we're familiar with a certain community of people, and there's a, there's a there's a relatively small number of people who have who you know immediately, like I said, kind of tried to drag me back into this fight. But the overall reaction I would say has been you know in, in the bigger world, and, and frankly, for the people that I mostly wrote this book for, has been really pretty positive and I've and I've gotten a bunch of emails and contact from people who first of all like more or less agreed with what I was saying but also even if they didn't exactly agree or had other thoughts they were they were talking about it in a way that was interesting and it, and it felt very gratifying that I felt like yeah the whole point of this is to generate a conversation and I felt that among a small group of poetry professionals who seem to have some kind of allegiance to, you know, to, to willful obscurity that I don't really understand. <laughs> like, yes, they, they, they were, they were pissed off, but, but yeah. who cares about them? But what's interesting <laughs> about that is there's a difference between, which we'll get into, I hope in this conversation, a difference between willful, um, obscurity 
and uh, poetry trying to evoke something that can't be said. Of course. Yeah. And some of these people, I think, are trying and maybe not doing a very good job of defending poetry as a vehicle for evoking what can't be said, which if they were to read the whole book would right. realize that you're also an advocate for. And they, they don't. And I will also say um, those people, again, those few people who have been kind of, you know, jerks about it are, are they don't really they should know better because they know even if they don't know my own poems, they should know that I'm an editor at Wave Books. I've, I mean, it's like crazy to say right. that, like, I that I don't that I think that all poetry should be just straightforward, you know, you know, absolutely, you know. Especially yeah, considering that you edited Olio by Ted right. Jess, which may be one of the most experimental books that came out that year. Yeah, and to win the one of the you know one of the most innovative structurally and you know co- complex linguistic tapestries of a book to win the Pulitzer Prize in you know in a long time, and so you know, and so I just I think it's just kind of. Yeah, you know, people. Yeah, whatever. People have the, their their what, what's the expression they have their dead horses they want to beat. No, that can't be right. I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we know what we mean. <laughs> okay, so so one of the things I just wanna I want to uh, bring up around the beginning in relationship to the book is just something that I'm hoping that we can track as we move through this interview, which is that you started you start out with what you said. It seems very straightforward, beginning with the words on the page. But as we move farther into the book the book becomes stranger. And um, I mean, you say at the beginning that you discovered in writing the book that there were some fundamentally difficult, even paradoxical obstacles to writing a book about how to read poetry. And you don't name them um, explicitly, but um, it does feel like... uh, One of them might be that in advocating a straightforward, literal first encounter as a first step, you're advocating it as a first encounter towards an appreciation of strangeness, mm-hmm. of mystery, even of bafflement within poetry. Um, in other words, that to understand poetry is to understand that poetry isn't about understanding <laughs> uh, in some regard. And what I like about the experience of reading the book as a whole is that we start oriented, but as we get farther, um, it's harder to um, you evoke the ways in which poetry is a vehicle for all sorts of things that are hard to articulate. And it kind of reminds me of looking at a familiar object hard enough, and then all of a sudden it becomes strange. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was something that you set up as sort of a, I don't know, of emotional uh, journey for the reader, if there was something you could speak to around that trajectory. Well, you know, I, I think in a vague sort of way, I had the idea that um, that I would need to not explain what you just said, but but somehow demonstrate it and enact it. And I didn't know how I was gonna do that, but I knew it wasn't a matter of you you can't you can't there's only so much talking around poetry you can do. At some point you have to just just get it in a place where people can can experience it. And so I I I I, I exactly what you're saying is is something that I was thinking about as I was writing the book, but I wasn't and I think in the end what happened is is that I'm fortunate in, in in the writing of this book in that I came to poetry relatively later in, in you know my young adulthood. I mean, I had a few experiences with poems that I talk about in the beginning, but I really didn't start seriously writing it until I was in my early 20s. So I can remember what it was like to 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 bump up against the things I didn't understand, and then to gradually kind of come to accept them and 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 love them, and and so tracking that autobiographical process 
also does what you're talking about. It's sort of as as I learned more about poetry and I became to ex- experience and 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 understand its strangeness and what it was doing more. I can track that movement through the book almost kind of like chronologically, you know. So 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 that and I think so that's why the memoir aspect of the book isn't just there to like you know whatever like be appealing or something. It's there. It's I think it's my own the growth of my mind might in a way mirror like the reader's experience of of gradually coming to understand more and more if that makes sense yeah it does make sense because like some people might have had this experience where they just instantly fell in love with poetry a certain moment and you know and then they or or maybe when they were very young or you know there's like lots of different ways you come to poetry or feel it or whatever but mine was more like you know yeah more like a grown-up or adult young adult person kind of you know and there were there were struggles with it and and things i didn't understand that i had to work through and i remember i remember that experience and was able to I'm hopefully in a, in, a, in, a, in, in an understandable way to to you know talk about it. Yeah, so. Well, I don't know if this is on point, but this whole tension between um, looking just at the words on the page or beginning by just looking at the words on the page, and then this issue of or question around mystery and the unsayable, it reminded me of a Frank O'Hara phrase: um, "The only truth is face to face." The poem whose words become your mouth and dying in black and white, we fight for what we love, not are. That almost feels like it's suggesting that Mm. both at the same time, the only truth is face to face. And yet as you read along that line, it feels weirder and weirder. And the more you look at the line, the the less it seems obvious what it's actually saying. Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, that's such a great, group of lines right there because it does exactly what you're talking about it's like it's so clear in some kind of way but it's but it's so elusive to try to re-say what he's saying but yet while i'm listening to you to say it i feel like i totally know what he means yeah but then yeah so it's it's he's you know he was a very important poet to me for sure i mean and and you know one of the things i really want to make sure i did in the book was talk about a lot of poems that were um that did elude paraphrase and did and did and were you know, presented themselves as difficult just at, on their face of themselves, you know, and like see what to work with those poems and not just only pick the poems that were like, right. kind of really, really quote unquote easy, you know, although those quote unquote easy ones are often, you know, the ones that are the most complicated and strange in the end. Is that what you mean by the employment of the Darwish quote, the, that clarity is, is the mystery? Yeah, extreme clarity is a mystery. I mean, I remember coming across that uh, and thinking... Well, first of all, I mean, when a great poet says something like that, you have to stop and think about what that means. But it really resonated with me. And I I also just love extreme clarity. It's like, I'm not even sure. (laughs) I'm not sure what he means exactly. I mean, I I think that can mean a lot of different things. But I think there was something about, you know, like when you're so... and, And I think it resonated with me personally as a poet, frankly, because I, in my last book, I think I got into this really... This idea of like how simple can the language get? Like how direct can I be and still, you know, get into the poetry? And it almost became like an obsession with me. Just you know, not not because I think that all poetry should be that way, or even that I always want to write that way. I don't, but just for some reason at that point in my life, and so so probably when I came across the quote too, it reminded me of my own yeah. interest as a poet. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Matthew Zapruder about his latest book, Why Poetry. Let's talk a little bit about what you think poetry does better than other forms. Early in the book, you talk about Baudelaire when he publishes little poems and prose. 
He rejects much of poetic invention, rhyme, meter, even mm -hmm. line breaks, and yet you still consider these to be poems. So what makes these poems, in your mind, versus, say, uh, uh, language-forward lyric prose like a Virginia Woolf? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know that that you you know you brought forward an example of someone whose work can Wolf, whose work can sometimes get awfully close to to uh, to poetry. You know, so it's I mean, the line I can't I'm not gonna sit there and say that there's like a that there's an absolute line, but I think that the Baudelaire is pretty clearly poetry, um, and I, and what I try to talk about in the section where I discuss it is, first of all, it's because basically what I say is is that. What's central to poetic practice is that it prioritizes the associative movement of the mind above anything else. Not always, not at any mo but any moment of the poem, but whenever necessary, it will always prioritize that over other things. And what do I mean by that? For instance, even if you're reading The Waves, or even if you're reading, you know, To the Lighthouse, there's still a plot. There's still characters. There still is our events. And, and on some level, those there's a tension between the language and those things, a productive tension, an interesting tension. In a poem, always the material of the language is going to win out when necessary. Beauty obliterates all other consideration, as Keats says. And that is what, that's the mark of poetry, I think. That's my, that's my contention that that's what marks it as a genre. So, and you can, and you can, you know, in poems, you can point to the specific moments where the poet chooses to prioritize something that she or he feels beautiful about language or interesting or exciting or the leaping of it or whatever over sticking with the point that they were making or whatever. I mean, it's just, and so that that's in a global sense, that's how, that's what I would say is marks the genre of poetry. And that's using the prose poem as an example. It's interesting because it removes all these other, you know, markers of the poem that we're used to. And it just only leaves that movement of the mind. Hmm. You know. So when you're when you bring up in this same section Valerie and and Emily Dickinson's description of poetry, to define define it not by anything formal, kind of like when you're talking about the Baudelaire, but by its effect mm -hmm. on the reader, is that what you're meaning? Or if I don't know if this is an answerable question, but the poetic uh, state of mind um, or the poetic effect, do you do you see that principally as the associative movement of the mind, or is that something different? I do, th I do think so. It is, it is, it is tough because um, that can start to sound like an argument that all poetry should be, you know, overtly associative or leaping, and that anything that isn't doing that in an aggressive, very visible way doesn't, you know, isn't real poetry. Which I do not believe at all, both in my own work or in the work that I love. But I think there is a kind of perfume of that associative movement, that leaping. And this isn't, you know, an original idea. I mean, for this, you know, I mean, Robert Bly famously wrote a book called Leaping Poetry that is, is about this. But even if you go further back, I mean, Basho writes about, you know, linking and 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 in the Hakaino Renga, he writes about how the linking principles and what he's what he's you know how that works and how that's changed over time. And really what he's talking about is that same thing. It's the way the mind leaps in, in in these ways that you couldn't predict in advance, but once the landing happens, it seems the connection is there. And and I also write about this. I, I make an, a connection between that and metaphor, and metaphor, which metaphor works the same way. And metaphor, I mean Aristotle, the first person we have to write about any of this stuff, 
identifies metaphor as central to the poetic activity. So mm-hmm. it's it's I think there's a lot of there's there's a historical connection to what I'm saying, and I'm just trying to trying to pull some of those threads together as best I can. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we have this great phrase. Um, Poetry is a constructed conversation on the frontier of dreaming. Right. I don't know well, if that was was you who said so it or that, someone no, else. No. So that is taken from as so right right when I say that before that I say um, I quote the well known psychologist uh, Thomas Ogden, who's actually lives in the Bay Area and he's a brilliant writer about you know analytic text. I mean he's a theorist about psychoanalysis, but he also writes some more uh, um, popular books. Uh, and this one is called Conversations on the Frontier of Dreaming, which is about poetry and psychoanalysis. And so that that phrase I use is from is from his book. But a constructed conversation. What I mean is is that poetry is a kind of formalized version of that of that of that. He he talks about how therapy or analysis like kind of brings us to the border between the conscious and the preconscious mind, and how important that is to get get in that space so that we can get into the deeper things that influence our thinking and that and so but i say poetry is like a kind of built environment where you can do that and when you need to go there it's there for you you don't have to get yourself into a trance or go see an analyst it's yeah. it's there for you you know well I, when when i hear this this discussion of poetry and the frontier of dreaming it makes me think of the other type of dreaming that you hear of with prose, which is the fictive spell. And I, uh-huh. I wanted to unpack maybe the difference between those two a little bit, because huh. when you talk about um, to the, light, the experience of reading To the Lighthouse versus reading Baudelaire, for instance. So um, when you hear what some people with certain types of fiction, or certainly the more popular types of fiction that people love is to be have the, ca- the fictive spell cast mm-hmm. over them. And people will even say, the words just disappeared, right. and then they wake up at the other end. Mm-hmm. And um, I wonder if some of the resistance to poetry—I mean, other and over and beyond um, being taught what poetry is improperly in school—could also be people having the um, mistaken notion that they're going to go under a fictive spell. Yeah. When, when in a way, whatever dreaming is happening in poetry, the words, if anything, are 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 jumping out more rather than disappearing, I would imagine. Well, it's a beautiful, I mean, what you're saying is quite beautiful, actually. And it's like, it's making me have all kinds of new thoughts. Um, Cause I didn't, I haven't taken a lot of time to, th- to think hard about that fictive spell and the difference between it and the poetic spell. Just when you're, when you're saying what you're saying, it, it does make me think that maybe what might sometimes break the poetic spell is the, is the fact that the, the experiencer might be expecting the things that cause a fictive spell to be there, and they're not there. For instance, what I mean is, is that you know, plot, uh, you know, setting, whatever, the, all this, you know, element, character, all these elements that are that that in the hands of great fiction writers create the fictive spell and make the words disappear. Those things aren't there, and so, or, or they can be there, but they're but they're provisional. In a poem, and so when they're when they when they're when the things you expect to be there aren't there, you can you can sort of and you're like not getting the experience you want to have. I guess that's sort of what you were saying, but it's it's I I I think again, it comes back to expectations about genre, that are that are, I mean genre is an unfashionable term right now, but it's but I think we do carry around these expectations for genre. We expect writing types of writing to do certain types of things. And I honestly think just a lot of what happens with poetry is 
people not understanding it is they're having a genre confusion. I think so, too. And you, you said know. something, I don't think it's in the book, but you said it in an interview on the radio um, about the experience of hearing music for the first time. And I think it was might have been the Velvet Underground mm-hmm. for you, where which I, th- I think most people have had this experience when you hear music you play the album and you just can't get it, but you're compelled to listen to it again. Right, right, so, right. But maybe after the fourth or fifth time of listening to the album, something like clicks in your brain. Right, exactly. And then you can't stop listening, but you're listening in an entirely different way. And like then you inside. go back and you're, and you're like, how did I not hear this? Right. You know, like, what? how did I think this was not a song or not music? It's like, I didn't, I'm, it, it almost, it's almost like it physiologically changes your brain. Yeah. But what was it, but in yeah. terms of the genre confusion, I was thinking like, I don't think most people know, uh, they need to read a poem many times. Mm. Like if they come to it like they're reading a short story, which they may only read once, um, they're coming to it with this expectation of getting it. And you have this interesting thing with... um, you, you reprint a, a response to a letter that you do for the rumpus yeah. where the person has this feeling of drifting when yeah. they're reading poems, but they never get the poem. And they're like castigating themselves for this feeling, you know? Yeah. You must, and of course, it's it's it, but, exactly the point to make that happen, you know? Right. But <laughs> but it seems like they don't know that that's Exactly. That's and the, I think most people these days don't know that that's Yeah. The and I think, you know, also it doesn't help that when, when we're in school, sometimes we're, we're you know, that's... That's not what we're supposed to be doing when we're in class. We're supposed to be figuring, you know, we're supposed to be working and staying focused and figuring things out. Sometimes when I give a reading, um, and I, I feel, sometimes if I feel in the room when I'm reading poetry, that maybe people's attentions are a little um, dispersed. I like to say that's okay. Actually, the mark of a great poem or a good poem for for a particular person might be the way that it causes you to think associatively in your own directions away from the poem itself. Hmm. So losing your attention to the poem might be a mark of a success. Hmm. Well, let's, let's, let's go further into that because if, if people are like wondering if they've gotten a poem or not. Uh, so this idea of intentional obfuscation, not being what poetry is about, yet you're still a proponent for the strangeness of poetry, its dream logic, its interest in the material qualities of language, mm-hmm. its associative movement, which isn't the same thing as intentionally obfuscate, obfuscating the poem. Um, but that this strangeness, nevertheless, is how poetry makes its meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also say that poetry moves us closer to what can never be fully explained, that partly what poetry does evoke is what can't be known, which makes me wonder... How are you? How are you using the word meaning when you say that poetry strangeness is essential to how it makes meaning? Yeah, I mean, I I, yeah. I feel like I, I don't know that I can say what you mean. I know what I feel like I know what you mean. Yeah, but I don't know that I can say it. And and I was curious if you had thoughts about that word, which is a troublesome word. Troublesome for sure for poetry. Yeah, um, I have had a lot of thoughts about it, and sometimes I think that there is a one of the confusions that happens is a confusion over the word meaning itself. And I think I had a whole, I remember now that I had a had written quite a lot about this in the book. At some point, there were maybe a few pages about it. And then I re- remember rereading it and thinking it sounded like I'd just gotten super high and was like trying to explain. <laughs> I was like, no, the problem is, man, that the meaning is not meaning. You know, like they had that kind of like, yeah. I remember reading and thinking like this is just ridiculous. But like, but 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 really, just to get it, you know, just to get it out of the cloud of of of, of THC, like uh, the 
the word meaning in 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 our in English can signify a few different things. And one thing it can it can signify is what do you mean in the sense of what are you trying to say? Like what is the actual significance of the words you're saying? You know, like should I go, should I make a left or should I make a right? You know, should I pick up the ham sandwich or should I, you know, get the oatmeal, whatever. Like that's what's what's the semantic meaning of the words. But then meaning also can can mean significance. What do you mean? And we're any of us has been in a relationship has has encountered this where you say something quite simple to somebody and then you're asked, well, what do you mean? Or vice versa, meaning why were you saying that? What's the larger significance of it? And I think that there's those are actually very different concepts. And that what I'm saying, trying to say with poetry is that semantic significance, figuring out and and, and really being attentive to what the words are saying on the page is the way first that you have to then get to meaning i.e. significance but it's really it's it's just unfortunate that that, that those that there's one word for those for two, two different things. things and actually maybe interesting that it's that they're the same that may be revealing about about some kind of you know somebody some philosopher can probably say something interesting about that yeah but not me well when i was preparing <laughs> just sort of coincidentally while i was preparing for our conversation today did that sound too stony by the way it didn't have... at all okay good no, I mean, you're going to have to work on it if you want it to sound more. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> but I came across a quote by William Gass about Rilke. He's a, a, tra- a writer and sure. translator of Rilke. And I'm going to read a, um, a radio-friendly version of what he says. Okay. Um, Rilke, who I suppose is my favorite writer, really, and in the best sense, a profound writer, is full of crap. <laughs> I mean, his ideas are nonsensical. As philosophical notions... I have no respect for them at all, but as poetic notions, they are absolutely beautiful. And I would add to the gas quote that mysteriously they are absolutely meaningful. Right. In one respect of meaningful. Yeah. Um, but I don't so, know. Does that resonate with you, that quote? I at all? would say, not only does it resonate with me, I would say the exact same thing about. And, and you know, I've been meaning to read that book about Rilke that he wrote, which just haven't gotten to it yet. But I'm. But this makes me t- immediately want to go pick it up. Um, but I would say that that is true about Stevens, hmm. who probably I think he's probably the poet I write. While Stevens is probably the poet I write the most about in this book, I, I'm one of the few who I probably just Ashbery, Stevens, a few others. But um, Stevens is like an eighth-rate philosopher. I mean, his philosophy is, 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 it's exactly what Gas says. It's kind of absurd, like sort of like, like idealism. It's, you know, he, and, and so Stevens hung out with Santayana at Harvard and, and thought of himself as a kind of philosopher, Stevens did, but he's not. That's not, that's not why his poems are good. And people, so people spend all this time trying to chase down the big ideas of Stevens end up with like these very uh-huh. kind of sophomoric ideas, but that's not what makes Stevens great. Yeah, it's 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 the it's what the poems do to your brain when you read them. They put you in that space of feeling like there's a the, the reality and the imagination are one or whatever whatever we can talk about. Um, but but the ideas themselves are are banal. In, in case you just tuned in, we're talking today to poet Matthew Zapruder about his latest book, Why Poetry. This sort of circles us back to one of the best sections of the book, which you've already touched upon, is around associative thinking. And, mm. and you, you say that what the poem is about is, is the way the mind is moving in the poem. Mm-hmm. Is that, I don't know if I'm saying yeah, that right. Yeah, you're saying, yeah, great. The aboutness of the poem, and maybe you mm-hmm. can unpack that a little bit, but the idea that we, as the reader, 
reenact the movement of the poet's mind when we read the poem. And it's that movement rather than the meaning of the individual words, which is actually the meaning of the yeah. poem. Which, of course, I mean, again, just to circle back or, or keep keep hammering away at the same idea. I mean, if you're not reading the words, you're not going to ever have the experience in the first place. But sure, that's the first step. But but I, I, I think at some point in the book, I say it's a bit like being haunted. Um, when you start to read a poem and you connect with it. And, you know, that's the other thing. You know, different poems connect with different people at different times for for different reasons. And so it's not going to work all the time. But if you happen to be haunted by a certain poem, your mind starts moving in unison with the mind of this person as they've as they've kind of constructed it on the page. And it happens in time. It happens. It's There's a physical aspect to it of actually kind of moving down the page when you read it. And it's and it is a, and it is about an unfolding process of realizations and that's that is that is the meaning of a poem and and the reason i say that's cuz they're made a certain way for a reason they're made that way to do something well um, and this might bring us back you know, to a genre confusion again right. when i think of if we think of meaning as gestural then and like you never well, you don't go see modern dance or stare at a painting and necessarily ask what is, I mean, sometimes you do, but you mm -hmm. don't always ask or even think to ask, what does this mean when right. you watch a dancer do certain gestures on stage that's, right. that are not a part of a story? Um, and in a way, like maybe we're coming with the wrong expectations again with poetry if, if we're looking at what does it make us feel when we move, like the poet right. moved. But we have to be careful because there is a – all this is true that we're saying about poetry and also it is a language act that has – that does have meaning in a more traditional sense too. And that is part of the effect of a poem more, more often than not. So that – so it's all bound up together. But if you just take the second part of what I said and you only treat it like a communicative act, then you really are missing something central about the poem. But if you – you know, on the other hand, if you were to just – forget that words have significance and that st utterances and statements function. I mean, it's language. It's still right. language. So it's very compl It's very complicated to talk about. It takes almost a whole book to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's, but it's, it's, yeah, I don't want to throw out no, that's... that other part of it either, because that's very important to me, you know, what the actual, because, you know, that's what, and again, I think most of us love poems, you know, cause they also, because they say something to us that we can take away into our lives, you know? Yeah. For sure. Well, I mean, I was reading, uh, James Loggenbach's resistance to poetry yeah. and then Ben Lerner's hatred of poetry just to sort of I mean, to, getting in a negative space just to sort of get into <laughs> like what is this conversation what yeah. what um, conversation are you entering of other books that are looking at poetry mm -hmm. and Loggenbach says something that I think is along what you're saying here he says my point is that readers want to feel attention in any utterance between the pe potential chaos of sound and the potential order of the meaning Chaos and order in themselves aren't so interesting. Great poems make sense because they threaten to make no sense. And they can't help but to do this because this is what language always inevitably does. Yes, so there's I'm, that weird I'm glad space. I didn't read that quote before I read my book because that, you know, well, I shouldn't say I'm glad. I probably just put, a, put it in there because that's yeah. like, that's, yeah, I agree with that 100%. And it, it always is, I mean, this is, the, and, and you asked me earlier, like, well, oh, you know, like, you know, about the difficulty of writing this book itself. And I think at some point it's because when you're talking about poetry, and this may be true for any form of art, but I, I can speak to poetry, almost anything I say 
the opposite is also true. <laughs> and so so it's very difficult to not drift into reductiveness or kind of like, or, or you know, to write some, it would often happen to me that I would write a passage in earlier drafts of the book and realize that if what I was saying was true, many poems I loved would not be considered poems. And that can't be right. Right. So I have to go back and re-say it, you know, to, to, to account for the reality of, 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 you know, the variety of poetry and approaches. So it's, it's, it's elusive. And that's, that's also sort of in the end why I came down to the fact that this book is an opening up of a conversation. You know, it's an, it's, it's an introduction in a way to, to some ideas, but it's not purport to be the be all and end all of these. And that's why it's great to have conversations like the one we're having, because it's like we can flesh out some of these things or pursue them down some interesting avenues and see you know, where the limits are reached and how it might need to be reset and rethought. You yeah. Know? Well, when we think about, when you say you can always think of the opposite also being true, there seems to be a great um, tolerance or even sometimes pleasure in contradiction or paradox or the mystery in what we, we mm -hmm. can't say and what we don't know. And I wonder if that's part of where, you know, some of the people are probably being taught poetry wrong. But uh, on the other hand, some people, like Mary Rufel says, I prefer to wonder than to know. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's people who would prefer to know than to wonder. And maybe those are people who are going to be less inclined towards poetry. Right. But it also depends on the situation. I mean, there are times when I would prefer to wonder than to know, and there's times when I would prefer to know than Versus to wonder. wonder. Yeah, I mean, if I want to, um, if I'm hungry and I want to know where the sandwich shop is, I would prefer to know. Than to wonder. Sure, but I, <laughs> That's about, but, but, but when I, it comes to poetry, <laughs> more often than not, yeah. uh, I, I, or let's let's say you know, but I also don't believe that it's a. I, I wonder whether for her that I that comment isn't as much about writing poetry as about reading it because I mean I think that that's also an important distinction to to remember like. And I think you don't have to choose between wondering and knowing in poetry. That's the thing that's when you're reading it. That's the thing that's so incredible about it. Yeah. It's like they're both you can do both things simultaneously, which is not something you can do at any other time for the most part, you know. The only reason I was bring well one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up is cuz it seems to share at least in my mind some um common traits with spirituality or religion in mm -hmm. the sense that um, most religions sort of decenter the human in the cosmos. So it's not about mm -hmm. progress, individual yep. progress and success. It's actually decentering sort of like the personal narrative. Right. Um, but it's also the, the employment of paradox and contradiction, like the Trinity is three and one. You can never solve that or mm -hmm. like a Zen koan, which you're never going to solve, but perhaps by trying to fixate on it in, in a certain way, you free something else up in your mind. Right. Um, do you see any sort of uh, resonances with a sort of a, a more of a spiritual stance? Not that a poet obviously needs to be spiritual, but but there's a certain stance towards um, the world that is one of I don't know if it's humility, but it's one of of a different place for the human in a in a strange way. For sure, I think I think I'm, that's beautifully said. I mean, I, it is making me think that I mean, one poetry is close to prayer in the sense that it is, it's not just describing something. It's the purpose of prayer, I mean, as I've experienced it, is it's more about actually bringing you closer to, to, it's like a spell that brings you closer to a consciousness of the divine. 
um, not all the way to that consciousness. That's impossible. We're, we're, we're human beings. We can't. We, but it brings you closer. And the same thing is true for poetry. I think it can bring you closer to that void, to the edge, to the place where meaning stops. And it's not, it's, it, it may not be that the poem actually talks about that, although it can. It's that it brings you there. And that's why, you know, towards the end of the book, it was important to me to talk about the limits of knowledge and about duende and nothingness and negation and like how central that is to poetry because I think it is those limits that we find ourselves at or, you know, or... So yeah, I think there's in that way that that's a connection that, that that I thought a lot about, like how it brings you somewhere you couldn't maybe get to on your own, that's close to some kind of, and and I do think that takes the human, the human centeredness of things down and reminds us, you know, of our actual tininess. Yeah, there there were a couple places in Why Poetry where you talk about how through the process of of writing the book things changed for you. So one of them being. Um, symbolism mm-hmm. and symbols, because uh, as you said at the beginning, you're really distrustful of this idea of, or you see it potentially being a damaging idea of looking at poems as puzzles and, and mm-hmm. um, that all of these different things that are happening in the poem are, are secret symbols for right. something else. But yet you found a way into the idea of symbols that you didn't anticipate in, in right. figuring out what you wanted to say. Can you talk yeah, about that? For sure. Us? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, well, I think I was vaguely aware of the symbolists as a kind of like movement. I sort of, you know, I, I kind of knew, was able to place that a little bit, but I hadn't really. And, and I think part of it was because that word symbols or symbolism uh, is so like, like, like you were saying, it's so pernicious um, I call it, I mean, people call it symbol hunting, you know, going through the poem and looking for the word that actually means a different thing or something. And so I was very like aggressive about proving that that wasn't what poetry was. But I, the more I actually time, I, 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 I devoted to these poems, the more I realized that the poetic symbol, you know, the way that a word kind of like can, a, a simple word or maybe not a simple word, just, but a word single word can open up into these vast realms of new knowledge that's that's one of the exciting things about you know uh about poetry i mean like think of that i don't know why but i think of that line from keats much have i traveled in the realms of gold at the realms of gold you know that's a symbol like like that's 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 a that's a like what does that mean i mean we can't we can't but it but it just opens up this whole new space for us and and so I, so as I was writing the book, I thought, you know, I came around to saying, I think at some point all poets are symbolists, yeah, you know, but not symbol hunting symbolists, but symbolists like, you know, with a capital S symbolists. So, and where you and you say in the book explicitly, uh, a symbol is a surplus of resonance mm-hmm. rather than a source of meaning, right? Which is which feels like an important distinction. Yeah, it's like when the when the when the little when the glass of the word is over the overfilled with the with liquid and suddenly it pours over and you're like you're just you're just in the, and you're like you're feeling that that excess meaning you know and like it's but it's in an exciting way and it's 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 yeah i think that's poets are looking for that um that way to do that to language or way to make that happen and sometimes i've even felt that poems there was a point in my life earlier on when i was writing poetry that i felt that sometimes the whole poem just exists to provide that one moment where where the symbol, the poetic symbol, you know, uh, the mysterious surplus of resonance can open up. You know that that mm-hmm. that that was exciting. I mean, I'm thinking about you know poems that I wrote 
my first books and how, how important that was to me, you know? Yeah. Do you connect that to, um, your discussion of metaphor when you say metaphor, isn't the connection between two different things, but the creation of a third right. field of meaning is that, do you see that in relationship to the symbol? I think they're related. Way? I mean, they're, they're, they're related. I mean, that idea comes from, from, you know, I mean, the, there's not that much literary theory in this book, but a few times I found it super useful. And one time was, uh, you know, when I was talking about metaphor to, to talk about IA Richards ideas and that that's, that's, he, he, he writes so eloquently about this, that how the, what a metaphor is, is the, is the creation of new meaning when the two terms kind of come together, you know, and it's, and, and that third field of meaning is, 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 yeah, is the making of, but yeah, new meaning made from the, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I guess you could say it's a kind of alchemy, right? It's like the, the, yeah. you know, you're, you're somehow new stuff comes from the old materials that, that, and, and, and even the poets themselves never know how it really happens. I mean, they can pretend they do, but they don't. Would you be yeah. willing to read the Dear Reader poem by James Tate and, and maybe talk to it about, about it in relationship to symbols? I would love to read a poem by James Tate. So Jim Tate was my teacher at UMass Amherst um, and one of the greatest poets, uh, contemporary poets for sure. And this poem, yeah, it's called Dear Reader. Dear reader, I am trying to pry open your casket with this burning snowflake. I'll give up my sleep for you. This freezing sleet keeps coming down and I can barely see. If this trick works, we can rub our hands together, maybe start a little fire with our identification papers. I don't know, but I keep working, working, half hating you, half eaten by the moon. Yeah. So in the in the in the in the book, I'm talking at that point about how the symbol, the poetic symbol, can connect a reader with the poet, uh, even if the poet's been dead for a long time or is far away, which is you know one of those two things at least is almost always the case. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was sort of saying that it's not just that you're reading someone's poem that was written a long time ago; it's that there's something about this about a symbol itself that can kind of like draw the consciousness of the poet and the consciousness of the reader together. And somehow some poems are explicit about that. And this poem is explicit about that. You know, I'm trying to pry open your casket with this burning snowflake. I mean, it's the thing I like about this poem is like, it's aggressive. It's like angry at the reader. You know, you're dead. It's saying, reader, you're dead. You're, 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 you're in a casket and I have to pry it open with a burning snowflake. And the burning snowflake is a kind of, symbol it's like what is that you know and you could waste a lot of time in 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 class trying to be like you know i mean you could say a lot of interesting things about it but you could also like try to reduce it into another like translate it into a familiar concept you know it's words poetic language or something you know whatever but but no it is what it is it's a burning snowflake and to reduce it from that would be to would be to take away from the power of the poem you know i don't know what do you think of this poem I mean, I don't know if I don't know if I have anything intelligent to say about it other than I I'm love sure it. you do. <laughs> are you a Tate? Are you a fan of? I Chase? love James Tate. Do you, do you have any anecdotes about uh, being a student? You could share. I have share? so many anecdotes about him. Um, he he was tough, you know. He he taught. He was an old school kind of workshop teacher, and um, 
Yeah, I remember early on when I was in class with him, you know, I was really, you know, I was trying a lot of different things in poetry and I was very, you know, I hadn't really been writing poetry for that long. And um, I remember I'd bring in a poem to class and this happened a couple of times and, uh, you know, we'd, I'd read it, he'd read it and then there'd be the silence and he would just pick up the paper and he'd say, no, and just turn it over and put it down <laughs> oh, on the no. desk. You know, that was it. That's all he'd say. And I was yeah. like, and at that moment I'd be like, oh my God, he's so right. That just totally did not happen. Yeah, and I think about that now. If I if I tried that, you know, I'd be. Does I'd be he also? Fired. Did he also praise? Oh yeah, but he was very patient. So so, and and I saw him do this a lot with other students, and you know, I would observe this. But there was a certain point where I got so frustrated and upset, not with him because he was totally right, but with myself because I couldn't do it. That I started, I started waking up really early in the morning and just writing and writing and writing for hours, but like kind of writing away from my conscious mind and then I remember bringing in a poem to class and I just had no idea what to think of it I didn't I really it really escaped me and I remember you know we read it or whatever and there was this long pause and then he just said huh and then he started talking about it and he just talked about it for a long time and I could tell that he was like okay you know this is this is what I want to pray this is the direction I want that I think he should go, Matthew should go in. And um, and I remember afterwards, after class, he came up to me and he, he like kind of put his arm around me. He was like, he was like, you're not coming back, are you? Really? Not meaning, but meaning like poetically, you're not coming back. Like you're now, now you're Oh, this gone. is a new vista. For right, you. right. Not, yeah. you're not coming back to class, but you're yeah. not, you're not coming back. Like you're, like you've, like you've, That's great. you've gone and it was great. And he was, so he, so he was, he praised when it was time to praise and he praised not, he praised to help. But he could be real hard on on people too, but not in a not in a mean way. He just was like it. Just anyway, I liked that because that's why I came to study with him, and yeah. and he was a master. And so what he said, I trusted and believed. You know, huh. yeah. We're talking today to poet Matthew Zapruder about his latest book, Why Poetry. There's another area that um, I think a lot of people will be interested in, where your your opinion sort of shifted as as you wrote the book. Also, so when we think about meaning in relationship to poetry, and that meaning meaning is more slippery, uh, not linear, not easily reducible, it makes one wonder what, if any, relationship poetry has to politics or to social change. Mm-hmm. And you started with maybe one uh, orientation around that. Um, or one way you were leaning and then shifted yeah. some as you wrote the book. Can can you talk a little bit about what you discovered in writing the book yeah. that maybe um, complicated things for you? Yeah. That? Well, I mean, a lot of things happened, um, not least of which was is, is, is the exacerbation of, you know, our current political climate last November. But, but I think that, um, but but really, all this is long before that. It's a little complicated because it's it has to do with personal stuff. Is that, you know, I grew up in Washington D.C., so I was surrounded by political talk, and and everything kind of more or less was about politics. And then I studied Russian literature, and I went to and I and I studied the literature, and then firsthand went to a place that was where our, all art was subordinated to political considerations in a, in a, in a, in a literally violent way. And it was, uh, da- sup- it was intensely damaging to artists and people's imaginations. And so I had a kind of visceral resistance to, 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 to uh, art that was, that was politically dogmatic or didactic in some way because of those personal experiences I had had. It also happened to be when I was learning to be a poet in the 90s 
that that the sort of style, the the poetic style at the time was very apolitical, at least in the dominant literary culture. Of course, there was a lot of other things going on that we didn't know about when we were students, but but sort of you know there was a kind of you know that that was considered gauche or or or, or not not like poetically advanced to be to be explicitly political in your poems. So so all those factors together kind of conspired to make me sort of have on one hand this feeling that you know like you shouldn't have political stuff in your poems. But I didn't really think that. And when I go back and look at my look at my work from the very beginning, it's full of political stuff. And po- political in the sense of like kind of not not like you should vote for, you know, Barack Obama or whatever stuff, but more like just a, you know, it's, it was part of my concerns and and cares and my and how I grew up and so it works its way into to, into my work from the very beginning. So I don't think I actually, as a poet, really believed what I thought I believed. And then as I was as a so as I was writing this book, I also grappled with that because I kind of knew that was true, and I knew I wanted to talk about it. But it just and so that is a big part of the book actually. And then of course, as I was finishing the book, you know, this last presidential election happened, and so the last the la- the afterward of the book is this kind of discussion of 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 you know, what, what, what now, or where are we now, which is, which is obviously we're on a continuum. I mean, it wasn't, it felt like a huge shock, but of course, as many people pointed out, it's just these, these problems, these fissures have been here, you know, since the, since the beginning. Now they're just, you know, out in the open more for, for, for certain segment of the population for whom they were hidden. So you, you pick three poems to go into with, in some depth that you admire Mm -hmm. that are that are overtly political poems, Audre Lorde's Power, Amiri Baraka's Somebody Blew Up America, and Merwin's When the War Is Over. Mm-hmm. And the Audre Lorde poem posits a difference between poetry and rhetoric with the lines, the difference between poetry and rhetoric is being ready to kill yourself instead of your children. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your own thoughts about the difference between poetry and rhetoric, um, both in relationship to the poems you ended up choosing versus yeah. a, a huge, like how did these poems rise to the top for you? And and more generally speaking, your thoughts on on poetry and, and rhetoric. Yeah, a big, a, big, a big subject. You know, and when you read that line, can you actually read it again? Because like it's so, it's, so, it's so powerful. I want to hear it again. The difference between poetry and rhetoric is being ready to kill yourself instead of your children. It's just, first of all, that line retains a central mystery to me. I can't, I don't, it's, 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 I understand exactly what she's saying, but it's, so I understand its meaning, <laughs> yeah. but its meaning is, is vast. And I think you could, we could, we could, we could sit with that and turn it over and think about it. It's also shocking. Um, it's, it takes two shocking um, acts of human transgression, suicide and killing one's own children, which are both of which are virtually impossible for your average person to imagine really doing. And, and it just sort of states them as if they're as if this is a choice one has to make. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean it's and and that's the exigency in which this person finds her finds herself. And that's the other thing that's interesting about those lines is that they are rhetorical. You know, they make an argument. They're kind of they have the quality of like a debate team argument or whatever. And the whole poem is so cool because it shifts between a a traditionally poetic mode and a more rhetorical one, a kind of like a, a more argumentative or just like discursive, like I'm going to explain this to you in a way that isn't beautiful, but is just kind of full of mouthfuls of words that are logical or whatever. And so it itself enacts that struggle between poetry and rhetoric. And I think 
You know, the, the poem is was written in reaction to the killing of a young African-American boy by a white police officer and then the subsequent acquittal of that police officer. And, you know, it's to read that is shocking, too, because you think, well, that just keeps happening over and over again. And this poem could have been written many, 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 many more times mm. after it was written. And but she herself, I think, is so seems in the poem so caught between her own impulses as a poet and also her impulses to, you know, explain, argue, shout in the clearest ways possible about, you know, what's what what's what's gone wrong and what what can no longer be allowed to happen. And so so she she's at war with herself in this way that feels you know intensely authentic in the poem. And that's that's I think it's it's power, I guess we'd hmm. say, you know, for me. And it's echoing you know, the Yeats formulation. Yes. Right. We make out of the quarrels with others rhetoric, but out of the quarrels with ourselves poetry. Yeah, which is which is I I mean I don't know this for a fact, but I I heard the echo of that in her line, so I kind of assumed I'm sure she knew that line. So, 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 um, so I, I either consciously or unconsciously, it feels like it it connects with that. But that's what what what's it, that's not important necessarily in understanding the poem. But it's but it's interesting to think about the difference between Yeats's kind of more stately, confident, you know, you know, whatever bifurcation of those things. It feels so so pleasurably natural what he says like you like you just there you you don't want to argue with it but like and her more tormented you know turning over of this idea and 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 so it's there's a kind of angry parody in the lord poem of that which again i don't know if it's intentional or not which is like she posits these two unacceptable alternatives whereas and, his two his alternatives are completely acceptable yeah you know? and maybe that's the extreme in in darwish's extreme clarity maybe of, of uh extreme clarity is is the mystery that's a, you know, I didn't make that connection, but there is a kind of, that her poem is extreme and it ends with this ex extreme image of, you know, she imagines a boy, what is it? Is it, is it, I need to look at the poem, but, but basically, you know, the violent sexual assault of an, of an, of a, you know, an older woman, basically that like, that's the, that's the physical manifestation of the rage that's created through this, this, um, you know, this systematic oppression and, and violence against her community. And so she imagines that that, that rage would kind of take form and do, and do that act. And it is, it's, it's, this is one of the most extreme poems you can ever read. I mean, it's it's full of violence and, and 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 uncontrolled rage, and you know, it's just it's completely it's in some ways completely out of control. It is extreme in that way. Of course, it's also controlled too in an amazing yeah. way. Also, well, when we when you talk about how almost anything you could say, which is part of the difficulty of writing this book, brings us to that the perhaps the opposite or a contradictory mm -hmm. thing could also be true. You quote Stevens, who says that. Poetry is the place to resist the pressure of the real mm -hmm. and suggests that the overwhelming amount of language we are exposed to, particularly language used for advocacy or language used in a utilitarian, persuasive mm -hmm. way, that that overwhelming limitlessness of this sort of language is a threat to the poet. Mm -hmm. So I was ho I was wondering how you hold that <laughs> in relationship to... Yeah. I mean, I, I think of when you talk about Audre Lorde and like she's sort of trying to negotiate, it seems like she's negotiating that in the poem herself and a, or maybe even Claudia Rankin and who calls the book an American lyric right. citizen, but also 
is writing with a lot of prose yeah. in, in a book of poetry. Yeah, I mean, I would say Lord isn't, she's not really negotiating. I feel like she's like falling down the stairs of this feeling or like avalanching down this feeling and, and kind of the, you know, but, but the, but the, yeah, I mean, I think that on the one hand I could say, you know, Stevens, I, I think there's a way that Lord's poem is, is a manifestation of resisting the pressure of the real because she, she takes in the facts of the event, but then she, it's by pushing them away in the end, that this other far more violent avatar of her own rage is allowed to manifest itself. I mean, the, she's she's overwhelmed by the fact of this young boy's killing. You know, she's 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 destroyed by it, and she takes it in, and it's in the poem. And then at the end of the poem, it gets, it, it's it's pushed away, and the vacuum is created. And what comes out of that vacuum is her own violent rage manifesting in the form of this, you know, violent act against this other woman. So it's, it is a kind of, it is a kind of resistance to the pressure of the real. But on the other hand, you know, I, I don't think that what's, I think sometimes what Stevens is saying gets, gets sort of understood as being like, poems shouldn't be about current events or whatever. And he is, that's not what he's saying, but he's saying that there needs to be space to reconfigure those elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I think well, that's these are, means. And maybe you've already answered my the, my contradictory feelings. Cause like on the one hand, I wonder if Baraka or Lord, or for that matter, Ginsburg or Muriel Rukeyser or Adrian Rich or Soma Sharif or Claudia Rankin would argue that there's never a time when the political isn't the personal, like, um, mm -hmm. if by being queer or a person of color or a Jew or a Muslim or an Arab in the current crisis, if like the private interior space is also a has the political mm. in it. Um, but on the other hand, I also wonder if given that poetry is the most marginal place of the, in the economy of books, um, the least commodified realm in literature mm -hmm. and that contrary to the culture at large, it requires us to slow down, um, to become more attentive, um, to not only read, but reread if there's something sort of inherently political about writing poetry, that's about a flower. Yeah, well, in a, in a in a strange way, for sure, and and, and and yes, it's a kind of resistance. I mean, you 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 are resisting by by protecting your imagination, and that is, you know, that's why the that's why Stalin came after the poets, not because they wrote Stalin should they weren't most of them weren't writing poems about how Stalin should be removed or whatever. I mean, I'm you know, they they were but they were protecting a private space for the imagination. And that was a threat. That's a threat to the state. So, the, like a, the private interior yeah, space. Yes, it is. And 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 people can say it doesn't exist, or they can, you know, people can say all kinds of things, but it does exist. And 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 it's it's and it is a threat to the state. And it is a threat to capitalism. And it is a threat to cruelty. And it is a threat to sexism and racism and and ableism and all. It it is. It's a threat to those things. And um, but and but. But and <laughs> I, 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 you know, we're, we're imagining that that there's some poets who might say there's no space that's free of po of political considerations. That could also be true. I mean, the, the 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 I'm not arguing that there's some idealized like little room in the imagination that's that's that that isn't impacted or isn't perfumed or with with you know with with all these considerations. I think that it's everything suffused with that. But I'm just saying that there's a space where you can kind of be 
have a have a more freer or dynamic relationship to those things. Yeah. Uh, in language or in the imagination, that that's that's kind of what I mean by like, or that that's how I understand what Stevens is saying. That seems like a crucial you know? distinction to right, me. Right, right, yeah. right. So, so I mean, I would never, yeah, I mean, but but on the other and and but third butt and I would say, <laughs> God, isn't it nice to imagine that maybe there's a little space where we don't have to? Because sometimes I think that what's made this monster, who's currently our president, so powerful is all the attention we give him. Mm-hmm. And what if we could deprive him of that, start to deprive him of it, start to starve him of his like attention blood, this, this attention vampire, you know, what would start to happen if we just didn't, if we didn't rush in to comment on every single thing he said, um, you know, and I kind of have this thought that maybe poems start to make that kind of space, yeah. you know, so. Well, I want to read you a couple quotes from both from James Longenbach and from Ben Lerner, who both right. wrote poetry books, and just hear your thoughts on them. <laughs> I know Ben. I don't know James, but I know Ben. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a buddy of mine. So. Okay. So this let's, w- let's be hard on him anyway. We can. Let's start with The Resistance <laughs> of Poetry Okay. Um, by James Longenbach. Poets have been on the defensive at least since the time of Plato, and rightly so since philosophers and literary critics have distrusted poetry. But poems do not necessarily ask to be trusted. Their language revels in duplicity and disjunction, making it difficult for us to assume that any particular poetic gesture is inevitably responsible or irresponsible to the culture that gives the language meaning. A poem's obfuscation of the established terms of accountability might be the poem's most accountable act, or it might not. (laughs) (laughs) Distrust of poetry its potential for inconsequence, its pretension to consequence, is the stuff of poetry. Mm -hmm. And the problem with many defenses of poetry is the refusal to recognize that the enemy lies within. I was curious about your thought about that, that the distrust of poetry is the stuff of poetry. Yeah, I, I, I I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of things about what he's saying that really resonate with me. And one is, is this idea that, I mean, I was just sort of thinking about how in isolation, so many poetic statements are patently incorrect or <laughs> just stupid or, but you know, like if you take one line out of a poem or one moment out of a poem, and that's why Twitter can be so, you know, unfortunate for poetry because it can kind of isolate a certain line and it just sounds ridiculous. But like in the, <laughs> but, but, but there's a bat, there's a kind of way that there's this kind of systematic, systematic is the wrong word, but like kind of consistent violation of norms that isn't that isn't that isn't that contradicts itself. I think that's sort of what he's saying. It's like and so you can like exaggerate or tell untruths or be ridiculous or or be completely narcissistic or even cruel or whatever. And in the system of the poem, it 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 it, it just creates a different sort of space, a free space. And that may be its to. Per, I think it's a complex way and rather beautiful way of of, of describing the anarchy. Of, of language and thinking that poetry provides a space for. And that's, he's right. That is why it's hard to talk about it because you end up normalizing, regularizing things. And I was really conscious of that in my book. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. I think you did a really good job. Oh, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> but I mean, I, I love, I'm, I, I am now, I have not read this book by Langebach, but I'm now going to read it because I've heard now two great quotes from it. I mean, it's really, I mean, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I, well, okay, I, I agree so, with him. So now we're gonna. Now I'm gonna read you ben, your your buddy Ben Lerner. Yeah, well, humble, actually, this isn't this isn't a quote from him. This is so. This is a summary of the book, The Hatred of Poetry, from the New Yorker, which says, uh. Ben Lerner argues that poems simply can't do what people want them to do. 
create timeless moments or express individual experience with universal appeal or create a sense of communal identity or overturn existing social mores or articulate a measure of value beyond money. All they can do is expose the impossibility of achieving any of these things by writing a poem. Of course, people who don't read poetry hate it, he says. It's not doing what they mistakenly believe it's supposed to do, but poets hate it too. Poetry is a paradigm example of human inadequacy. Mm-hmm. I know this is, he's coming at the, um, right. I don't know if you read The Hatred of Poetry. I did, I did. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's yeah. a very different book than your, yeah, yeah, in yeah. your book and in, in, in most regards, I would say. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fun read. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Ben, of course, is brilliant. And, 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 I, and I liked spending time with Ben's thinking always. Um, I... I think that there's a way what he's saying is true, which is that we are fed a bunch of nonsense about poetry that's supposed to be this kind of sublime experience and it, and it almost always disappoints. Um, and there is a kind of falseness to this, you know, this desperate attempt to, 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 to say that the poem like is, is perfectly sums up X, Y, or Z. So I, I kind of think that he, I'm not sure that explains why people hate it, but I think, I think he's right about what he's saying. I'm was less convinced in the book about what he said about why poets hate poetry, that has not been my experience with most poets. Um, I don't. I think sometimes we too dislike it, <laughs> but I don't think that. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's true, and I don't really feel disappointed by poetry. And I, but I, I think that as I remember the book, I mean, it's been a few months since I've read it, but I remember at the end he kind of comes around to saying, you know, it's like actually I do kind of love it, and it can it can kind of do these things, or whatever. So he so he leaves himself a little like he the screen door is a little bit open in the back yeah. there for him. So so you know, of course, because it's Ben, he really knows what the real deal is. But I think, I think he in the yeah he 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 says. It's an interesting thing he's saying there, and I think there is there is a real truth to what he's saying about why people can be disappointed by their expectations of it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, as as we get towards the end of why poetry, um, we get to one of my favorite sections, which you've already touched on a little bit, um, which might be for a lot of people the most mystifying section, and it's the section about poetry in relationship to nothingness, mm-hmm. how poets are alchemists of nothingness, and you quote Dickinson who says. Nothing is the force that renovates the world. Auden, who says poetry makes nothing happen. And Lorca, who says poems are drawn to the edge of things. And it is in this section where you talk about negation and poetry of the creation of a defined vacuum in perception and also how nothingness is why you are a poet yourself and not a storyteller. Um, so I'm hoping you could talk about the importance of nothing. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing more important. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think that it is. Well, well, one thing that happened is is that I sort of ha- had this idea in teaching that I would say, and there's something amusing to me about giving these very blanket rules and teaching. I, I, I do it to be funny. Basically I say, here are the, here are the only two things you need to know to be a poet, you know, whatever, like, and, but I, but I, but there's a truth, a grain of truth to it, which is I say, you know, when you're stuck in a poem, either ask a question or negate something. And I say, look at all so many great poems. That's what happens in them. They either, they stop and they just ask a question that they don't know the answer. The person doesn't know the answer to, or they just negate something that they've just said or some, or some, something to negate it. And I was thinking about how questions and negations are kind of like these door opening things. I mean, they, they open the consciousness, you know, to different things. And so that's sort of where 
But, and then once I started noticing it, I just saw it all over. And that kind of made me think that this was the way the book would need to end with really accounting for, for the limits of knowledge, but also just the, the, the constant presence of nothing and negation in, in, in poetry. And that led me, I wasn't expecting it, but it did lead me to talk directly about personal stuff and, 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 you know, the, the big nothingness, you know, death, the, 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 the void or whatever. And then of course I, I was thinking about my dad because that's the person, that's the person from my immediate family whom I've lost. So, so it was, you know, so that, that, that it became way more intimate and autobiographical than I necessarily was expecting that part to be, but it felt right to end, um, there. I, I was not planning that, but yeah. And so. do you feel like the nothingness is also that, that inevitable gap between the word and what, what it represents? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's just a fact about, I mean, again, this is not an idea that I came up with, but it's language is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it, it doesn't really, it's, it's an approximation of the world. Um, a, a incredible, dynamic, m- miraculous approximation that works pretty damn well and has its own incredible properties, but it's not the world. Right. And, and it's, and uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a thing in the world language, but it is not, it, it doesn't equal the world. And only a very naive person would think that words are exactly what they say. And so it's, 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 and there's a kind of disappointment to that in a way, but, it, but it's, but poets turn that disappointment into something exhilarating. I mean, that's their, their exciting, you know, that, that's, that's their job, I think, in a way. Yeah. And one of the things we haven't talked about is, the visual aspect of poetry, mm. which I think of with nothingness, yeah. the white space, right. the enjambment, which are two assets that it has over For most, sure. most prose. It's not an accident that that, 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 that that white space is so central to poetry. It's it's an enactment of the presence of that nothingness. And it's funny, I mean, I hadn't really write about this in the book, but I do think that, you know how beginning poets will often, you know, use the lower cast, case I and their lines will be really short I think they're in a way they're in their in their own beginning way trying to trying to make everything smaller so there's more of that white space and nothingness there. It's a kind of conventionality or like a sort of you know it's it's a crude way of doing that. But I think instinctively people understand that 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 the poem needs to needs to acknowledge the presence of the void. And that's, so that's what they're doing when they do that yeah. in their own way, you know, it's like, and that's so it's, I, th- I think it's, 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 it's cool. It's instinctive. Like when I see that, I'm like, oh, it's like, huh. maybe that person's, you know, now I just have to show them all these other poems where people do that in some other ways, you know, that they're not the first, that, that first solution. You know? Yeah. I wanted to sort of end our conversation with Ashbery since he mm. was such a, a pivotal uh, figure for you. Yeah. Little J.A. just turned 90. <laughs> really? Yeah. Just turned 90 wow. a couple weeks ago. And it, yeah. So you talk about your John Ashbery epiphany in the book, uh, about how you originally should thought... Should there be a word for that, like an epiphany or like a... I think there should be. <laughs> um, about how you originally thought his poems didn't make sense. Yeah. They didn't go anywhere. Um, and that you were in the presence of essentially a giant literary hoax. Yeah. Um, but then you read the poem, The One Thing That Can Save America, and it ended up changing your mind not only about him but about contemporary poetry mm-hmm. and then by extension ending up changing your life. So I was hoping you would read the poem, but sure. maybe before you do, you can um, talk a little bit about what in the poem was, um, why it did this for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I what, what happened is I was taking a poetry workshop and when I was in grad school and so I was sort of thinking, 
you know, that was, I had said earlier that I had started writing poems, you know, kind of unexpectedly in a way, sort of almost despite myself, um, and simultaneously trying to pass these very complicated exams uh, to go on from the master's to become a PhD. And so they were requiring a lot of study. I mean, you know, 12 to 14 hours of reading a day and study. Mm. And, and the exams were partially in Russian and, and they were really tough, you know, so you had to study a whole year for them basically. So I was doing that. I was starting to write poems. I was taking the poetry, you know, it was a lot happening in my mind. And I was thinking about changing my life and going, but I was, you know, and I knew Ashbery was an important poet in contemporary American poetry, but I didn't know really anything more than that. And so I got this little version of self-portrait in a convex mirror, you know, his, his universally acclaimed book. And I read it and I was like, what the hell is this? Like, I don't, you know, but I, there was like, we were talking about with the music earlier. There was something that made me keep kind of coming back. It was like, I, I, it drew me back in, even though I was resisting it. And then I remember this poem. Uh, I think it was really honestly something very basic, which is that there's something so attractive about the title to me the one thing that can save America. I'm like, what is that? What is, when I finally read the words, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, and I was like, the one thing that can save America, the one thing, like, what is the one that it's like, I'm now I'm dying to know, right. you know, I got, what is the one thing that can save America? I got to know. And then just, and then the first line is so simple. Is anything central? And it just felt like it summed up my whole life. I was like, is anything central? You know, not like I didn't know in my own personal life. I didn't know is anything central. Like, is is, you know, is are my studies central? Are my is my desire to write poetry central? Is there something else that I haven't that I don't understand yet that's central? Like, what is central? You know, that's, Which, a, that's a basic human question, right? Yeah, and just a, as an aside, what, one thing I really loved about the book is the way you talked about. In, in your own autobiography, the, the sort of your trajectory felt almost associative. Like yeah. you weren't you weren't on a linear narrative <laughs> yeah. of like getting on a track a certain sort of job right. track that was then going to build up your pension in a certain predictable yeah. way, um, and that there was an association between some of your life choices with sort of your orientation and uh, attraction to poetry and right. the way the mind moves. Yeah, right. I had to trust that that type of leaping consciousness in a way that probably isn't ordinarily a good way to make life decisions. <laughs> you know, sometimes when I, I see that in my students who are poets who really, really get into poetry and some of them, they start applying the same principles they use to write poems to their life choices. And I think maybe not, maybe, <laughs> not. maybe negative capabilities and a very good, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like, yeah, strategy yeah. for moving through your romantic entanglements, yeah. but it certainly is for, for poems. Yeah. But it worked out for you. For me, it worked out. That decision did work out. Although, you know, there've been other impulsive, uh, instinctive decisions that have not worked out so well, but this, but, but you know, that's life, right? But yeah, no, I, I try, I knew what I needed to do. I knew what I needed to do. I just didn't, I wasn't ready to accept it yet, but, but, um, yeah, so I can read this poem. I mean, it's a little, it's a little on the long side, but not too long. It, it's, in four stanzas and um it's just it's i think the thing about this poem that i want to say is that it is both public and personal you know it's it's it shifts between this kind of more talking about america and place names and and you know what i think of as like almost like trying to talk about like democracy almost in a way and then but it also shifts into this kind of relationship poem or a poem about a kind of um uh, love affair when it kind of moves in and out of those two things in this way that I just still find so mystifyingly graceful. I just mm. think this poem is, yeah, it's a, it's a mystery to me still, but okay. The one thing that can save America is anything central. 
orchards flung out on the land, urban forests, rustic plantations, knee-high hills, our place names central, Elm Grove, Adcock Corner, Storybook Farm. As they concur with a rush at eye level, beating themselves into eyes which have had enough, thank you, no more thank you. And they come on like scenery mingled with darkness, the damp plains, overgrown suburbs, places of known civic pride, of civil obscurity. These are connected to my version of America, but the juice is elsewhere. This morning as I walked out of your room, after breakfast cross-hatched with backward and forward glances, backward into light, forward into unfamiliar light, was it our doing, and was it the material, the lumber of life, or of lives, we were measuring, counting, a mood soon to be forgotten, in crossed girders of light, cool downtown shadow in this morning that has seized us again. I know that I braid too much on my own snapped-off perceptions of things as they come to me. They are private and always will be. Where, then, are the private turns of event, destined to bloom later like golden chimes released over a city from a highest tower? The quirky things that happen to me, and I tell you, and you know instantly what I mean. What remote orchard reached by winding roads hides them? Where are these roots? It is the lumps and trials that tell us whether we shall be known and whether our fate can be exemplary, like a star. All the rest is waiting for a letter that never arrives. Day after day, the exasperation, until finally you have ripped it open, not knowing what it is, the two envelope halves lying on a plate. The message was wise and seemingly dictated a long time ago, but its time has still not arrived, telling of danger and the mostly limited steps that can be taken against danger, now and in the future, in cool yards, in quiet small houses in the country, our country, in fenced areas, in cool shady streets. It was great having you on the show today, Matthew. Uh, it was great to talk to you. I love talking to you. We were talking today to Matthew Zapruder, the author of Why Poetry. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio, from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>